Good afternoon and welcome to Dialogue and Debate, our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other activities here at Cumberland Lodge. My name is Ed Newell, I'm Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge. Last time on Dialogue and Debate, we explored the role of the arts in building social cohesion and discussed the challenges the sector is currently facing through COVID and what the future of the arts may be post-pandemic. If you missed the discussion, you can watch it on the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website. Today, we'll be discussing from different regional perspectives some of the themes and recommendations from our latest report on resilient communities. The report outlines 24 recommendations on building community resilience. And today, we'd like to focus on how these can be applied, particularly in the north and the southwest of England. We're joined by two panellists and delighted to welcome the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, and Joni Willett, Senior Lecturer in Politics and Coordinate, a Co-Director of Cornish Studies at the University of Exeter. So thank you both very much indeed for joining us. We'd like to hear from those uh, who are watching. So if you're joining us by Zoom, we encourage you to use the chat function and to interact with our panellists and other viewers and to submit questions. Uh, now, today's webinar, I must say, is shorter than usual, so we might not get time to be able to get to everyone's questions, so do please bear with us. And throughout the webinar, we'll also be live tweeting, and it would be great to hear your views on the discussion by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag, hashtag dialogue debate. But we're short of time, so we'll go straight into uh, the discussion. And Andy, a question for you, uh, and looking to build back better in local economies post-COVID. When we're, when we're doing that, how can we ensure that building back better is transformative for those uh, local economies and communities and not simply restorative? Mm. Thanks, Ed, and afternoon, everybody. What a good question uh, to start. Um, I, I think we've got to be honest about what we're witnessing as this virus uh, takes a hold in uh, the poorest parts of our country. What we're, what we're seeing here is the fact that we have uh, lots of communities that lack uh, a level of resilience. Uh, that means um, they are more exposed uh, to the situation. And Public Health England have, have now uh, concluded that the virus is endemic uh, in parts of uh, the country. And the picture is very different, isn't it? When you look at the regional uh, what, what we can see regionally now with obviously more of the north of England today coming under uh, restrictions. So before we get to Build Back Better, the question is why, Ed, isn't it? Mm. I would say the answer, the answer was given to us as to why the poorest communities are being hit hardest by Professor Sir Michael Marmot earlier this year in his 10-year um, update on his health inequalities report. It's a factor of low-paid, insecure work, poor quality housing. These are the structural reasons why um, the poorest communities are struggling uh, to, um, to, to build a level of resilience against, against the virus. So you're absolutely right. Um, these weaknesses were there before COVID-19 arrived. It's just that we couldn't see them as clearly as we can perhaps now. Mm. So what I would say when it comes to Build Back Better I think it needs to start with a redefinition of levelling up. Levelling up has been um, put forward as a, uh, uh, an initiative based around infrastructure that might be de delivered in 10 or 20 years time. 
I think you've got to say, look, this is much more about people and communities. Uh, and you can't level up until you've got those foundations uh, in, in place. It's about people's work. You know, if you can't get paid, if you were to self-isolate on request from NHS Test and Trace, you, you just don't have any resilience. And when you have lots of people in that position in a community, you, you know, there's, there's something really, really wrong there. And that's the fragility of people's existence in large parts of the country. Low paid employment, poor quality uh, housing. You know, Ed, a really interesting thing was said to me recently by a director of public health. If you look at the areas of the north that first went under restrictions in the summer, Greater Manchester, East Lancashire, parts of West Yorkshire, they map almost exactly the old housing pathfinder areas of the Labour government that I, that I served in. And these places have had many promises of levelling up over the years and none of them have been delivered by successive uh, governments. So it's not really a surprise really that they find themselves in the position that they do. And how you kind of transform rather than just restore to answer your question, it's about good secure employment for everybody. It's about a secure home of a decent standard for everybody. Without those building blocks, you, you don't have the ability, in my view, to build resilience or then to, to build a, 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 a society transformed. Uh, the foundations are what will allow levelling up to happen. And uh, I think that's why the government needs to redefine levelling up post-pandemic. Mm. Thank you very much, Andy. So following on from that, uh, Joni, um, perhaps you could share sort of a perspective from the southwest, and particularly, do you think um, there's enough investment in, in parts of the country that are away from major metropolitan centres? And I'm aware, as being as someone from the southwest myself, uh, how uh, it can feel uh, cut off from, from a lot of the rest of the country. Hi, Ed. Uh, thanks very much for having me, and uh, hello to everybody else um, that's watching here too. Um, yes, uh, this sort of... This issue of, of transformative rather than restorative uh, change or transformation um, uh, and for rural areas in particular is a really important one. Um, so one of the issues that, well, actually rural, rural it, it goes without saying that rural areas and urban areas are very, very different. Um, you know, Population density and in term, and also in terms of like geographical spread as well the, the areas that people live in. So what this you know so um, you know, and, and by by definition you know a lot of although we imagine rural areas and the southwest characterizes this beautifully we imagine rural areas as kind of idyllic places where where um where people go on holiday and um people buy second homes or move to especially now they can because they're home working but in um but rural areas are also places of, of enormous of enormous poverty um that you know living cheek by jowl, just as in urban areas living cheek by jowl with with extreme wealth as well um uh, and enormous talent as well within you know, within rural areas that aren't necessarily able to you know, that, um, that we aren't necessarily able to do anything with um, just because of the way that they're structured. So um, 
people in, in rural places often have enormous difficulty getting around, you know, quite literally getting from one, you know, from uh, the town or the village that they're living in to jobs and opportunities in other towns and villages. So we, we you know, and so we, we need a, a, a major investment in transport infrastructure to, to make sure, you know, and novel and creative solutions to make sure that people are literally able to get around um, the places that, um, that we live. And I think we've also got to um, bear in mind the lessons from the, the lessons from um, structural funding, European structural funding and the Brexit vote. Um, because one of the things that was really interesting was the way that regions that received the highest levels of European structural funding support or the highest amount of money from structural funding support also tended to be the regions that voted disproportionately highly to leave um, the EU. And in some of the research that we did about this um, a, a couple of years ago, one of the things that we found was that people didn't feel that the, the things that had been done with the money reflected the things that they wanted and needed to be done. So the lessons that we can take from that, or we believe that we can take from that from the Southwest, is that um, it's absolutely vitally important that decision makers um, uh, put into place, or that, that the decision makers do um, talk work with local communities and the first thing the first thing that needs to happen is a really important listening exercise what is it that the ordinary people in in rural parts of the southwest what is it that their lives are like um and what is it that they need and i think that's where we need to start to make transformative change thank you very much again We'll come back to, to that point um, in a moment, but I just want to um, pick up something you've already just said about talent um, and this untapped talent. And, and turning to Andy, and one of the things in the Cumberland Lodge report, it talks about the importance of empowering leaders uh, and recommends leadership training made available uh, more locally. Do you think that this would help to ensure that political power and influence is distributed more equitably across the UK and perhaps have you seen any good examples in, in your region of where this, this is uh, happening? You know, uh, Ed, as somebody who was in Parliament for 16 years and has kind of left and um, kind of worked now amongst local leaders, what really strikes me, a number of things strike me, but actually the fact that local leaders are just more prepared to be pragmatic, focus on issues, get on with things, live in the real world, all the things that... <laughs> politicians in parliament often don't, uh, don't do. And I think the reason why politics in our country is in quite low esteem is because of the, you know, the obsession with point scoring, the, the, the party divide that's baked into Westminster. You know, it hasn't left us in a great place, let's be honest, with regard to uh, public trust in the, in the political system. And, Certainly from my point of view, and I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time there and I kind of in some ways fell out of love with Westminster and also with party politics. I was quite tribal in the early days of my career, but what I found was that the system, the longer you're in Westminster, the more it makes a fraud out of you really, because it makes you do and say things and vote in certain ways that perhaps you don't quite believe in. And you end up sort of feeling at odds with, you know, and, and this kind of communicates itself to the to the public and stepping outside of that, 
and kind of just devoting to place rather than party, I think is just a much better starting point for a healthier politics. And I think local government leaders, you know, obviously are doing that all the time anyway. They just get ignored by uh, Westminster uh, so much. And I, I personally believe when we've lived through a decade of really growing division in our country, actually one of the answers to it is to take power out of Westminster, vest it in people who are closer to their communities, and then let things be rebuilt from there, because place, rather than party, is a better starting point, because place is a unifying force. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, pretty much everyone in Greater Manchester is passionate about, about Manchester and Greater Manchester and wanting to see it prosper. So you're kind of starting from a kind of position that unifies people. And, you know, Westminster just doesn't get that and uh, it needs to get that. And, you know, I absolutely would say, you know, I would trust some of the local leaders I've seen with more power than some of the people I used to work with in Westminster. Thank you. Joni, Joni is that the, would you agree with that from a Southwest perspective? Yeah, I think one um, uh, one of the real strengths about uh, local government is that it is so much more deeply connected to the to the community um, or, or or to the communities, um, you know, however we define them. Um, and um, we're in some ways we're really really lucky because you know we've got a very well developed series of layers of, of local government, whether we're talking about, you know, our unitary authorities and city, you know, city uh, uh, unitary authorities or district councils or even parish councils, of which we have many throughout the Southwest, who all have the potential. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by parish councils. Um, and I know very well, you know, I know very well from a whole load of research that we've done that a lot more needs to be done in order to make parish councils much more representative of the communities that they're situated in. But they actually have an enormous possibility or enormous amount of potential to play really vital roles between as an interface between people, like ordinary people living in, you know, um, living in our communities and people who are involved in government, you know, in, in, in local government and then through that into sort of, um, uh, central government. So I think there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of possibility and potential for really deep connectedness, but um, it's but at the moment, it feels, and Andy might have a different perspective on this, I don't know, and maybe this is a very sort of Southwest or very Cornwall kind of perspective, but it feels as if um, uh, local government isn't really being able to make the decisions um, about localities that um, it needs to be made. It's, it feels more like local government has to do much more of an implementation of central policy kinds of role rather than actually make decisions that are really based on on local needs and i think that's something that urgently needs to be addressed perhaps you'd ask on to that well I, I agree with joni um i think local government has been hollowed out uh, in terms of powers and funding um by uh, all governments to be honest um and I don't think the one that I was in did uh, anything like enough to um, to rebalance things. I think it began in the 80s, didn't it, with sort of loony left councils, the idea that you have to cap them and you have to control them and, and then start to defund them. You know, 
I just think we've really suffered uh, suffered from, uh, from from that. The Kurz Lake review is something that I think is really instructive, and I would you know, to inform this debate we're having. I think people should look it up. This is the UK 2070 Commission that uh, Bob Kurz Lake led, and it, it was very stark in its conclusions. It said uh, the UK is simultaneously the most politically over-centralised country in the OECD and also the most regionally unbalanced. And it's clear to me that those two uh, facts are, uh, are connected because when you vest so much political power within one postcode, SW1A, inevitably you get um, national funding allocation and national policy heavily skewed by the perspective of people who live and work within that world. And uh, you get, I think, that part of the country prioritised for, for investment. I'm patriotic. I'm, I love London. Um, I've lived there for a lot of my life. So I don't take this as the professional northerner with a chip on his shoulder, although I do have, have one a bit. Um, it, I, I want to see London do well, and it has done well. And you know, I couldn't have been prouder in 2012, and I played a bit of a role in that. But the UK can't be London. You know, it just can't. And yet it has been uh, for, for far too long. And I think it's it's a it's a facet of a political it's a factor of a political system that is basically completely, you know, situated in that uh, in that way. And and you know, the failure to, to devolve power out. Well, obviously there was power devolved to Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, but that increased the sense of dislocation, I would think, in Cornwall, in the Northeast, in the Northwest, where people said, well, what about us? They can see London doing really well. They can see a more assertive Scotland and Wales. And this is, these are missing pieces in the UK's sort of um, uh, uh, governance. And you know, I think Gordon Brown is right to talk of a more federal UK where everywhere has a degree of agency to do things for themselves of the kind that Joni's saying. Uh, that's both councils, but then combined authorities like the one that I lead above those councils that can give more capacity and more profile to the, um, uh, to, to the things that our regions want to do. That's one dimension of what we've been talking about, about um, well, certainly in the report about uh, regional... Uh, devolving power regionally but also another thing we were looking at very much was uh, the other dimension what we're talking about from Westminster was top-down approach and trying to build up community uh, engagement um, and getting well, you can't. moving up to the bottom I mean how do you uh, can't you just can't I mean can't. I'll give you give you sorry I'm yeah, jumping no, in there ahead, but in, in my old job as health secretary I could see numbers not names yeah. In my current role, I can see names, not numbers. And there is a world of difference between those two things. Yeah. So you can start in this role with people in the places where they live and you build up from there. Yeah. Whitehall starts with this sort of telescope. To, it can just see the statistics related to those places. And actually, even within a confined policy silo, so it's not even looking at the totality of those people living in those places. It's just looking at through, through the prism of one policy. So the Whitehall system isn't just remote, it's kind of hidebound by this sort of policy specific approach. 
and it just doesn't translate then to what 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 people need on on the ground so you know substantial devolution of power out of westminster into the english regions i think is the only real way i can see of of rebuilding a healthier public life and a public discourse in this country just come in there a little bit as well. I completely get what you're saying about, you know, about this being about um, about numbers rather than people. And I think that we also end up focusing really heavily on outcomes rather than, you know, rather than people. And I'd really love us to uh, to, to be able to to think about um, uh, uh, revitalizing places. You know, um, hang on, that's not um, I'm not making myself as clear as I'd like to be. But um, so. Uh, we have a you know very a very well defined target culture. Lots of people have talked about it. You know where you know we've got a, a, a finite amount of, amount of of resources and we need to um, we need to do some stuff with it, um, which is really problematic for rural areas in particular because if you you know it, let, let's just say you've got a billion quid and you want to spend it improving people's lives. Um, if you spend that billion quid in an uh, you know in a metropolitan region, you're going to hit more people. You're going to help more people. But if you spend that same amount of money in a rural area, you're not going to help as many people. And um, uh, it's going to be much more. It's going to be really quite complex because you're dealing with you're dealing with sort of like dispersed populations and um, uh, and and, uh, much more, you know, quite patchy services in many, many cases, and very poor transportation and things like that as well. So, um, uh, but these 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 kinds of inequalities or that become reproduced, um, whereby it whereby uh, rural areas get get less attention and less funding, um, also, uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, is also driven by this by the need for targets as well as the way that we imagine rural places as well or, or by by this numbers kind of culture that we have at a, a central government level rather than really addressing and really working with the human stories um, and and the human injustices and inequalities that we have we've talked about the um the talent that's that's available and, and good local leadership. We've got a question here from Kay Scorer, who's asked us, she says, um, how can we encourage and enable people from disadvantaged backgrounds to participate in politics and government when they see so few people like themselves in those roles? Um, yeah. Andy, over to you. Well, it's a great question, Kay. Yeah. Um, but I would again say, um, devolution's your answer. Um, I set up a youth combined authority very early on and I said, because uh, I'd, I'd said in my kind of campaign running up to becoming mayor that I wanted to make young people the priority. I, you know, from, in my judgment, young people have been made the target for cuts by Westminster and I was saying, look, devolution, the point of it is to do something different. I'm going to make them my priority for investment. But more than that, I'm going to let young people actually not just Kind of come in and be patted on the head and sort of um, asked to sort of um, you know create an authority just so we can kind of tick a box. I gave them the job of uh, building my policy for a free bus pass for all 16 to 18 year olds in Greater Manchester, um, which was also then linked to free opportunities uh, in cultural organisations, theatre, free theatre tickets, all kinds of amazing things, and they did. And I think. That's how you do it, Kay, is what I, I would say. Bring people in 
and give them a proper ability to shape the policy. Um, I think what pe puts people off is people get brought in and then they're just kind of like, then they know they're being just brought in for show reasons and you know for box ticking reasons and not to actually contribute. Whereas I think, oh, if you spoke to the other mayors, uh, Ed, you'd have examples. Andy Street is very good at this in the West Midlands. We've just set up a race equality panel, a disabled people's panel who actually did an incredible survey about what lockdown was like for disabled people. And, and the voices that came through that just simply wouldn't have had an outlet, I, I, I don't think, had we not done that. So I think that's the way I, I think you do it, is don't create token positions or you know, bring people in and then create a space in which they can make a real, a real difference. Um, next week, we have the Greater Manchester Green Summit that's running all week and it has been run by our Youth Combined Authority. That is how you, I think, build, rebuild political engagement from the, from the bottom up, give people a real job to do. Thank you. Joni, you're bursting to say something. I, sorry, sorry, my apologies. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think a real key part is about um, creating the spaces for people to be able to talk. I think it's really, really, really important. So, um, so uh, some of the work that we did about parish councils is we we're finding that people were, uh, um, I love parish councils, well, changing the spaces, working with the work, um, making the changes that we want to see in our local communities, in our communities, I think it's the most fundamental um, uh, part of politics and I also think it's it should be the most accessible part of politics but part of the reason why people don't get involved in this is because that they feel that the, the the institutions that we have or the people that are in the institutions aren't necessarily receptive to people like them so we need to make sure that our political representatives and you know at all levels from you know from the most um fun, uh, fundamental foundational level right the way up to into um uh um council you know, uh, councillors um, and the people working in in local politics have a real understanding you know a, a real openness to um, to taking on board um, ideas that are different from people that are different to them and I think this is is really important and just a very very quick story of um, I was reminded of a of a co-production thing that um, and people that I know in Cornwall Council did, where they were working with some councillors and working with the community, and they were really surprised because the uh, they they um, they went in, they had no agenda or anything like that, which really really freaked out the councillors because they were like, we want a list of things that we need to go through, and the community were like, well, we don't kind of do that because we don't know we don't know your rules, um, so let's start on our own rules. So we want to have a chat about this thing first. And it took a couple of meetings, but over the course of that couple of meetings, some really embedded co-production was able to happen. And in the and and the, the people in the community that were involved were able to do some, you know, to, to do some amazing things that wouldn't have happened if they'd been shoehorned into the into the structures the local government normally works in. So I think it's really important to have the mindset for change and difference. Thank you. I'm conscious that we're on a tight time schedule, so um, we need to start to wind things up. So I'm going to ask um, both Andy and, and Joni uh, one final uh, question, which is, what's your vision for more resilient communities in your region over the next 10 to 20 years? Perhaps we could start with Andy. It, it's got to start with the 
basics that people need to have good health uh, and a good life. And those two, I would say, are uh, good work and good housing. I mean, without those two things, you can't really have, well, you can, but it's, it's much less likely, but you can't really have a good life. And we've allowed too many citizens of our country live without uh, secure work and secure housing. And I think you know, that is a sort of a, it's a cancer that needs to be cured really, because we have an epidemic of insecurity in some of our poorest uh, communities and that damages people's mental health um, when they're living week to week in fear of not being able to pay the rent. And, and I think this, this pandemic exposes that. So in terms of what we're trying to do about it, Ed, we've developed a great Manchester Good Employment Charter, um, which is about the real living wage, secure contracts of employment, no zero hours, flexible work. Um, and bear in mind, you know, we're all living a more flexible working life at the moment, and it isn't as bad as, bad as employers might have thought it would. It can actually maybe improve productivity. So we're going to link the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter to all public procurement in Greater Manchester coming out of this and see if we can, from the bottom up, drive higher standards of work. But I think it also has to be linked to, to decent, um, secure housing for everybody. I've done a lot of work in Greater Manchester on homelessness and rough sleeping. And I've been to Finland where they have something called Housing First, which I thought when I went there was a, was a sort of homelessness project, and it is, but actually it's a product of a national philosophy. And that, that housing first idea is a national philosophy in Finland. Basically, that every citizen needs good housing if they are to achieve anything. If you've not got that foundation behind you, you, you haven't got a basic level of resilience yourself. And if lots of people in your community haven't got that, then, then really there's, 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 there's no resilience in the community. And the truth of the matter is, so many more people in places like Greater Manchester these days are in private rented accommodation from which they can be evicted quite quickly if their wages don't match the rent. And that leads to people living with these levels of stress and insecurity, which are damaging, I think, uh, to, uh, to their health and well-being, but also to the, to the public good. So I would say, you know, in some ways, we, we, we talk of healthcare as a universal right and education, but I think housing has to be seen in the same, in the same category. You know, housing, I would say, uh, decent housing needs to be a, almost a human right in UK law because without it, you can't have anything. But if you give people decent housing, then I think you would save on the social security bill and, you know, people would be so much more uh, productive. And we've lost, we've become too short term in this, in this country. We've, we allowed a situation over the last decade where people in more comfortable middle-class professions to save money when the, the austerity and the cuts began, they stripped security and out of the bottom third of society. And I think now in this pandemic, we can see where that kind of approach uh, gets us and it, and it gets us to a very, very divided uh, society. So I would say good work for all, good housing for all. Without those two fundamentals, Ed, I don't think you can have resilient communities. Thank you. Thank you. Journey. 
Um, I would echo the housing like you would not believe. Um, the amount of people that I've spoken to um, over the course of my research and also from experience as well, you know, the, the amount of cognitive bandwidth that um, the people use up um, when they're in insecure and poor housing is absolutely untrue. You know, all of the energy that people would be able, you know, would otherwise be able to um, to put to, to to flourishing as human beings is just taken on. You know, perpetually having to find somebody somewhere new to live. You know, so you know, um, you go to what you think is going to be a secure tenancy, but highly expensive. If we're talking about the southwest and coming from a Cornwall perspective, this is really hot news. We're in a hot, a hot really hot topic right now. Um, highly expensive rented housing, but you might well get kicked out in a year's time. You know, I I know people. Um, I know people who's, um, who moved every single year for six years. You know, their child thought that's what you do after, you know, every year you move house. The amount of energy that takes. It's, a, you know, it, it's one of these spaces where we waste talent absolutely enormously because people can't get on with the things that they could do to flourish as people and so therefore help to the communities to flourish but the other thing that we that we urgently need to do is we urgently need to understand more about what rural areas are really like you know beyond the rural idyll beyond the the beautiful sleepy places that we that um that people go on holidays and, and you know and our covid staycations and all of this kind of stuff um, uh, um, we all need a much better understanding about what it is really like to live in rural areas. And when we're having those conversations, then maybe policy might actually invest in rural areas in a, in a better way and we'll have the resources to be able to put into place the things that we need to do. Thank you very much indeed. We need to stop now. And um, just to say that our next webinar will take place on the 7th of October at the usual time of 11am and we're going to be exploring the complex politics behind language and terminology uh, and we'll be talking to our guest panelists about how language can be used to in include but also exclude people and how the fear of causing misunderstanding and offence might inhibit our freedom of expression. So if you're interested in that you can sign up now on our website cumberlandlodge.ac.uk if you'd like to get alerts about all our forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Finally, just to say that like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times. If you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation. And you can do that online via our Just Giving page and we'll put up the link immediately after this webinar. But finally, finally, thank you for joining us and thank you very much indeed to our wonderful panelists, Andy and Joni. Thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.